This morning I want to start by having you look at this painting by Thomas Fade from 1958. It's going to come up on the screen here right away. There we go. It's entitled Sunday in the Backwoods of Canada. Now, whenever I look at that picture, I think to myself, now doesn't this family appear to be just engrossed in Father reading God's word to them? Uh, truthfully, when you look at Father there, it looks like Mother put him up to this. And he's going through with it because he's probably going to get a good scolding if he doesn't. Uh, if you look at Brother on the side there, he looks like he's thinking about this ending very soon. Probably hoping that he can get out and play. That's if he's allowed to play on Sundays. I'm not sure why this lady over here is falling asleep on the baby. But certainly she's not being a very good example to the children. And if you look at sister there, I'm not sure how well you could see it. But her eyes are rolled back in her head. I'm thinking she's probably th thinking about the boyfriend that she's not supposed to be dating. Ah, Sundays in the 1850s, the good old days. The days when Charles Spurgeon used to get in trouble for using humor in the pulpit. And the days when Mark Twain thanked God for six days in the week so that people could recover from the Sabbath day. Sundays in the 1850s. I'm thankful for the 1906 Azusa Street Revival that birthed the Pentecostal movement. Because if there's one thing the Pentecostals have at least taught the church, it's how to celebrate. We've got charismatics even in the Catholic Church now, Catholic charismatics, and it's infiltrated all of our denominations and churches and has brought some life and some celebration back to the churches. Hezekiah was a king in the Old Testament who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was one of those few kings in the Old Testament that was described as a good king as in the tradition of his father David. Not only was he a good king, but they even compared him to the ideal king in the Old Testament, that is King David. In 2 Chronicles 29 we read, Hezekiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight just as his ancestor David did. And Hezekiah wasted no time in showing his piety. As soon as he got on the throne, as soon as his father passed away and he came into power, we read in the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. See, the temple was the center of worship. For the one true God. The temple was the heartbeat of Israel. As the heart is to the body, so the temple was to Israel. Where the people would gather together from all their different tribes and be unified around Yahweh. The one true God. And yet, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had shut it down. Like many of the not good kings, they began worshiping idols, setting up other temples and shrines, sometimes up on the mountains and different places where people practiced all kinds of false god worship. Ahaz had actually even shut down the temple. 
Go back one chapter and it says, Ahaz shut the doors of the Lord's temple so that no one could worship there and set up altars to pagan gods in every corner of Jerusalem. You know, there is a good kind of rebellion towards your parents. Not all rebellion is bad. And Hezekiah gives us an example of good, godly rebellion. And in many ways, Hezekiah could not have been more obvious than sticking it to his father. As we read about Ahaz shutting the temple down, setting up all of these false shrines to gods, then when Hezekiah comes on the throne, the first month of the first year, he reopens what his dad shut down. In fact, it says that within 16 days, the temple was repaired, reopened, and was up and running again. Talk about defying your old man. That's what Hezekiah did. A holy, righteous act of rebellion. Obviously, this set the tone and for Hezekiah was wanting to set the tone for everybody. He was saying within the first few days of his reign, I'm not like my dad. In fact, I defy the gods that my dad worshipped. Now that I'm on the throne, we are going back to the ways of Yahweh. The temple is going to be reopened. And during the temple repairs, it says that Hezekiah also summoned the priests and the Levites. He called them to purify themselves. Many of them had not been practicing for many years with the temple not being run. And then Hezekiah makes a covenant with God. And with the temple now reopened, Hezekiah rededicates it to the Lord. And one of the first things he does is gets the musicians to start playing. To lead the people in acts of praise. We read that there were sacrifices and thank offerings. And they were brought in by everyone who was willing. And in one of those instances, in fact, it happens a couple times in this story, where it, it just astonishes you, the people were willing. In fact, the offerings kept coming with such abundance that the priests and the Levites didn't even have the manpower to know what to do with it all. People just came and were bringing more and more. They were repenting of their sins. It was a revival uh, that was being orchestrated by the new king on the throne. And then Hezekiah restores the Passover festival. The Passover, one of the central events of Israel's history. Before Israel got free from the Egyptians, when God had killed all the Egyptian firstborns, but passed over Israel's firstborns, it was the final straw that finally let Pharaoh say, let these people go. Israel had not even been practicing this. It would be like us today no longer practicing Christmas or Easter. Hezekiah, when he comes on the throne, is reminding his people about such central events like the Passover. And so he reinstates the Passover. 
And since the Passover has not been observed for so long, many preparations needed to happen. And so Hezekiah and the leaders agreed to celebrate the Passover one month late because they don't have enough time to be properly prepared. It would be like us so neglecting Christmas uh, that we say, okay, we haven't celebrated Christmas for 20 years. We're going to start celebrating Christmas again. And we don't even have decorations. We don't even remember what this event's all about. We need to be so prepared and, and re-prepared for this that we are going to celebrate Christmas this year on January 25th. Because we're just going to need an extra month to, to get ready. In his enthusiasm... And in the hopes of calling all the people back to God, Hezekiah even sent out messengers. Not only throughout Judah, but throughout the northern tribes, Israel. Now to understand the background here, the northern tribes, north Israel, had been decimated by this point. The Assyrians had come in, they had decimated. For all intents and purposes, Israel no longer exists. They're just some scattered people in and amongst the Assyrians. Eventually they become the ten lost tribes of Israel. Uh, they just become lost in the nation that conquered them. But Hezekiah has such a desire for bringing people to God that he sends out messengers, not only to Judah, but to the remnants still all around in the areas that the Assyrians have taken over. And these messengers say things like, Return to the Lord! Don't be stubborn like your ancestors, like Hezekiah's own father was. Worship the Lord, for the Lord is gracious and merciful. If you return to him, he will con not continue to turn away from you. Unfortunately, many people don't learn their lesson. And even sending these messengers into the north of Israel... Even after their nation had fallen apart because of their unfaithfulness, we read that most of the people just laughed at the messengers and made fun of them. It's part of the inheritance we get as messengers of the one true God is many times people just laugh. However, not all laughed. It goes on to say that some, however, from Asher... From Manasseh and from Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem, back to the temple. It's never a loss because there's always some. And all the people of Judah and some of these scattering people from the tribes that had been defeated come back to Jerusalem to celebrate a Passover that hasn't been celebrated for years in a temple that hasn't been opened in years. And then comes the Passover celebration. Again, because of how quickly things were being restored, it says that many of the priests and the Levites were not properly purified. Even with the extra month of delay, they still did not have time, all of the priests, to be properly purified to carry out the worship. And so Hezekiah does an interesting thing. He intercedes on the priest's behalf 
and restores all those who truly want to follow God. Listen to what we read in 2 Chronicles 30, 18 to 20. It says, King Hezekiah prayed for them. And they were allowed to eat the Passover meal anyway, even though this was contrary to God's law. For Hezekiah said, may the Lord who is good pardon those who decide to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Even though they are not properly cleansed for the ceremony, and here, listen to this, this is important, and the Lord listened to Hezekiah's prayer and healed all the people. See, Hezekiah's flexibility in celebrating the Passover a month late. He didn't celebrate it at the right time. He delayed it by a month, which was contrary to the way Israel was supposed to do that. And the priests were not able to be properly prepared. And it says, in fact, that they were not allowed to eat the Passover meal because this was contrary to God's law. Hezekiah interceded and God listened and they went ahead anyway. Hezekiah shows us a perfect model against legalism. Hezekiah knew what was more important than just following the letter of the law. And that was the reestablishment of people's heartfelt faith to God. Hezekiah knew that allowing for celebratory worship motivated by repentance and faithfulness is more important than following rules and procedures which sometimes can even snuff out the very heart of celebration. Hezekiah knew that laws are not ends in themselves. And then whenever we make them ends in themselves, as if all God cares about is the law, it ends up defeating the very purpose. And so Hezekiah made these concessions in order to get the people to be right with God. During my time in Edmonton as a youth pastor, I was at one of our church business meetings, and the moderator at the time, by the name of Bruno, uh, was at a business meeting, and he uh, was commending me for doing a good job. I had been there for a couple of years as a youth pastor. He commended me for uh, doing a good job, and then he made a motion for everyone to applaud to show their appreciation to me. And the motion was then seconded. He asked if there was any discussion that needed to be made. No discussion uh, followed. It was then voted on by show of hands, approved, and then once it was approved, Bruno said, you can now applaud, Pastor Steph, and everybody applauded. And it struck me when I was there that nobody found this odd. And, and though I appreciated Bruno and the church's show of appreciation, he so perfectly followed the rules that it kind of killed something. It kind of seemed like, well, okay, party on. Uh, sometimes we can get locked in the rules and no longer even understand what their purpose is for. Hezekiah shows us a heart for God that understands when the rules are important and sometimes when the rules need to be fudged because of the circumstances. So everyone who wanted to follow the Lord came to the Passover. The musicians led the people. Peace offerings were sacrificed and the people confessed their sins to God. In fact, it says that the celebration went on for 14 days. 14 days of celebrating. 
I got a little bit of a taste of that when I was in Brazil a few weeks ago, and it was the World Cup. And Brazil was in a, in a continual state of celebration as long as Brazil was in the World Cup. Everything kind of went downhill after that. Uh, but to be part of this whole community where everyone is excited, everyone is celebrating. When the 14 days were over, it says the people then took their faith into the streets and into the communities. It says they restored the land by getting rid of all the pagan shrines. Not only did Hezekiah reopen the temple that his father had shut, but once the 14 days of celebrating were over, then the people went out and all of those pagan shrines that his father had set up, the people took them down. It was a call to faithfulness back to God. Hezekiah himself organized the reforms and he personally contributed financially in significant ways. Again, it says that the people responded with such thankfulness and generosity that the exact words that it uses, it says the offerings came in in great heaps. You imagine that in church, passing the offering plate and the ushers are having to try to balance it because money is spilling over the sides. The people were so excited, they just kept giving. Throw in my wedding ring. I'll throw in, I just started throwing everything in. Take their wallet out, throw that in too. They're just so excited. Hezekiah built storehouses, it said, for the gifts. And he put a guy by the name of Kor in charge of distributing the free will offerings to some of the most needy. And then it ends by saying, Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. And as a result, he was very successful. Now, one of the ways to interpret Old Testament stories, narratives. One of the ways to, to discover what is the dominant theme, the point that it's trying to make, is to look for repetition. That's often the way stories work. Uh, we can think of even tales that we tell, like the three little pigs or Goldilocks and the three bears, and there's, there's these patterns that, you know, happens here, happens again, happens again. There's repetition, or there's a, a sudden contrast in a story. Those are the kinds of ways that you look at plot in the Old Testament and try to understand what is the dominant theme. One of the things, when you look at the story of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 to 31, one of the things that you will see repeated over and over again, which gives you the clue, this is what the author is trying to communicate, are these phrases. They offered joyous praise and bowed down in worship. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced greatly because of what God had done for the people. So they celebrated joyfully for another week. There was great joy in the city, for Jerusalem had not seen a celebration like this one since the days of Solomon, King David's son. And then in the similar vein, we see how the people responded out of this joy. It says, all those whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings there was an abundance of burnt offerings, but there were too few priests to prepare all of the burnt offerings. 
And the people responded immediately and generously with their tithes. And they piled them up in great heaps. Essentially, you'll discover that the the big idea of this story is that joy and generosity characterize a person forgiven by God. When someone is forgiven by God, when someone understands the grace of God and what God has done for them, joy and generosity simply flow out of them. It's almost unstoppable. It just bubbles up. It's like when you fall in love. Back when Nancy and I were dating, I remember I was actually the youth pastor at that same place that had to take a vote on whether to applaud for me or not, Um, and Nancy and I were dating. I was living way up on the north side of Edmonton, and Nancy was doing a practicum in speech pathology about, um, from where I was, probably about an hour and a half away. She was about 45, a half an hour to 45 minutes south of Leduc, which is another 20 minutes south of Edmonton, so, and I was on the north side of Edmonton, and I was also going to seminary at the time. And there were many nights where I would go to school all day on the south side of Edmonton where our seminary was. Then I would drive up to the north side of Edmonton and I would run a youth event. And then that youth event would finish up around 9, 10 o'clock. And then I would drive from the north side of Edmonton all the way to Pinoka and get there at maybe 11 o'clock or so so I could spend like an hour with Nancy And then after it was midnight, then I would drive to Leduc and I'd crash at my parents' place because they live in Leduc. And then I'd wake up early in the morning and go back to the south side of Edmonton to go back to school. Why did I do that? Because I was in love. I'm still in love. I do different things. Um, Energy level's gone down a little bit. but, but But there's no rational reason for it. You don't calculate all of that, and, and it, it just, you are so joyful, you're just so in love, you're just so excited about the relationship that you don't even think about that kind of stuff, and you just give. You're just there. That's what it's like when you are excited about what God's doing in your life. It doesn't have to follow a, a, a program, it just is the overflow of love. Joy and generosity characterize people forgiven by God. Those who experience God's forgiveness show him gratitude and joyful celebratory worship. They show abundant generosity. There is a direct correlation between how grateful someone is and how generous they are. It's interesting, it doesn't really have to do with how much people have. They've shown numerous studies that people that have more money don't necessarily give percentage-wise any more than people that have less money. Uh, The biggest factor in how much people give, not only with money, but even with their time, with their talents, with everything else, is how joyful and forgiven they feel. When people are excited about what God is doing, When people are in love with Jesus Christ, they're simply generous. It's just the way it is. I never look at any of 
the facts and figures about how much people at the church give. That's just one thing I, I don't do. Christine, our treasurer, sees all that information. I, never, I have no idea what, what people give. But I can almost guarantee pretty closely how generous people are with their giving just by how joyful they are in their walk with Christ. How vibrant of a relationship they have. Because the two are closely connected. You see that with how much they give of their time as well. Guilt and duty, tradition, obligation, those things never motivate people. They might motivate people for a short period of time, but they don't really change behavior. What changes behavior is when we fall in love. And we do the kinds of things to maintain love. Hezekiah did just as his ancestor, King David, had done. Really, he did just as his ancestor, King David, had done. Let's go back to David. Remember David when he brought in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament. So when they brought in the Ark of the Covenant, it was showing, it was all the people that God was now coming, entering Jerusalem. And listen in 1 Chronicles 15 to how the people responded when they saw that symbol of God coming to their city. It says, so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to Jerusalem with shouts of joy. The blowing of horns and trumpets, the crashing of cymbals, and loud playing on harps and lyres. This is one of the reasons why throughout the scripture, throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament, into the book of Revelation, all the way through, I never understand the arguments in church about volume. Because the volume in scripture is predominantly loud. In fact, loud is a dominant word all through the book of Revelation. In fact, you look at the Psalms, there's, there, the number of Psalms that are celebratory, loud Psalms, to the number of Psalms that are soft, meditative Psalms are about four to one. Celebrating, shouts of joy, blowing of horns, crashing of cymbals. I have to admit, I don't understand what loud playing of harps is like. Like, did they have electric harps or something? Like, how do you play that loud thing, 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 how? Um, anyway, they plowed, they play their harps loudly. It was because they were full of joy. And if this wasn't enough, it then says in the same story that David then, in the midst of all of this, danced before the Lord with all of his might. In fact, he danced before the Lord with all of his might that his wife even complained that he was undignified. I think he only had his underwear on or something like that. That might have had something to do with it. But David went total Pentecostal here. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And though his wife was upset with how he was worshiping God, we read in the story that his wife was wrong. Because the Lord commended David for what exuberance he worshiped God with and condemned his wife. For the rules and regulations and the pharisaical way that she was trying to hem it all in. Now here's the question. If Hezekiah 
and David. And many of the old people in the Old Testament could celebrate God like this. When they lived in the time of only illustrations and shadows. See, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a shadow of Christ, Jesus, who is the true presence of God. The temple in the Old Testament was merely a symbol of Jesus, who is the true temple, God among us. Jesus said, destroy this body and in three days you will raise it up. The people realized that Jesus was talking about his body. He was the new temple. The Old Testament Sacrificial lambs, the covenant, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, the, even the king himself were all pictures, illustrations to lead us to Christ, who is the true king, the true David, the true temple, the true Ark of the Covenant, the true Sabbath, the true sacrificial lamb. And so if the people in the Old Testament could experience such joyful, exuberant worship of God when he was only giving the illustration, how much more should we today who now live in the presence of the Holy Spirit with the real thing having come and promising to come back again in Jesus Christ, how much more should we celebrate? How did we ever go from Old Testament words, joyous, rejoiced, joyfully, joy, heaps of generosity, shouting, blowing, crashing, loud playing, horns, trumpets, cymbals, harps, lyres, dancing with all his might to Sunday in the backwoods of Canada. How did that happen? And which group would you rather be a part of? Which is eternity going to be much more like? On Palm Sunday, when the true Ark of the Covenant entered Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, when we understand the whole narrative, Old Testament, New Testament together, that's exactly what's happening. Remember, in the Old Testament, when David was dancing and celebrating, and the Ark of the Covenant was coming into Jerusalem, and everybody was waving their branches and banners and celebrating, that's a precursor to Palm Sunday. Because on Palm Sunday, that's exactly what we have. We have the real Ark of the Covenant riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem with everybody waving their palm branches and everybody shouting and singing and saying, Hosanna, Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory to the highest king. Here he comes. Now, of course, when all of that happened, David's wife was still around. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Shut them up. Make them be quiet. They're undignified. To which Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. You can't keep my creation quiet. You try to shut them up, you try to quiet them down, 
and the, the very stones, my very creation will burst forth in praise because they know their king when he has come. And then interestingly, Christ comes into Jerusalem, the new and the true Ark of the Covenant. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and in the Gospel of John, we find that one of the first things he did when he comes into Jerusalem is he cleanses the temple in the tradition of Hezekiah. What did Hezekiah do? He cleansed the temple, and he reopened it for the people. What did Jesus do? The Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple. In many ways, he opens the temple again. It had become a marketplace. It had become a place of business. And Jesus said, this is supposed to be a place where the people of all nations can come and gather and worship me. And he cleanses the temple. And when challenged as to what right he had to do this, Jesus shows that he is the true king in line with David and Hezekiah. He, in fact, is the king of kings. The one that David and Hezekiah were pointing forward to. For when Christ cleansed the temple, unlike David and or, or, or Solomon establishing the temple, or Hezekiah cleaning the temple. When Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus cleansed the temple to the point of making it obsolete. Jesus cleansed the temple to such an extent that he's saying, this temple is no longer even needed. All right, Jesus said. You want to challenge me for cleaning this temple? You destroy this place, which happened in 70 AD, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They explain. It's taken 46 years for Herod to rebuild this temple and reestablish the temple and for Hezekiah to reestablish it and for Solomon to build it and all these different things. It's taken 46 years just recently to rebuild it, and you can do it in three days. But when Jesus said, this temple, he meant my body. Jesus is saying, the real thing has come. People no longer come to meet God in a physical temple. They come to meet God in me. I'm the temple. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. You destroy this thing, it no longer needs to be built. People come to me. In Christ, one greater than the Ark of the Covenant has come. In Christ, one greater than the temple has come. In Christ, one greater than King David has come. In Christ, one greater than Hezekiah has come. The presence of God has come. Our sins are forgiven. Eternal life is given. Relationships have been restored. And this is all because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If the people in the Old Testament could celebrate with the shadows, how much more can we celebrate with the real thing? In the name of Christ, the poor are fed. In the name of Christ, demons are cast out. In the name of Christ, broken hearts and limbs are healed. In the name of Christ, grace and mercy is extended to everybody. If those who understood these as illustrations knew who how to celebrate, how much more should we when we have the real thing? Joy and generosity characterize people 
who understand what it means to have received forgiveness and grace by God. Joyful, celebratory, worshipful living, and abundant generosity are the marks of Jesus' followers. In fact, Paul in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, even says, interestingly, he says in the context, even in the midst of many troubles, hear that again, Paul writes, Christians, even in the midst of many troubles, Christians are filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. It's almost like Paul, when he wrote uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, was thinking back to Hezekiah's story. Because those exact same two things come there. That we will be filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. The two go together. Generous people are joyful people. And joyful people are generous people. You just think of the uh, Christmas story of Ebenezer Scrooge and how joyful he was. And remember in that story, his sour, angry, miser, trying to hold every penny. Remember when he, after those ghosts come to him and he has his conversion and he gets it? Do you remember? He's almost giddy. At the end of Charles Dickens' story, he's skipping through town celebrating. People are like, is this the same man? All of a sudden, Scrooge is just like throwing money into the streets. He's, he's so overcome by joy when he finally understands things from a much better perspective. That the generosity is just oozing out of him. Many ways, Ebenezer Scrooge had what you'd call a conversion. And he went from being this miserly, angry, ungenerous man to the most giddy, joyful, abundantly generous person. Christ has come. He has restored us to be new people. So it's time to celebrate given us life. He's forgiven us. We are loved. As Christians, we should be known by all those around us when you asked, how would you describe a Christian? How would you describe a Jesus follower? They're just kind of crazily happy people. I don't know what it is about those Christians. They're so joyful. They, they seem to have so much to live for. It's because we know what it means to be forgiven. I mentioned a book ending the message with Psalm 149, that great celebratory psalm. And I'll end with Psalm 150, the psalm that ends the whole Psalter with these words. And what, again, if, if, if this is what people who understood God in the Old Testament could write and feel, how much more can we think and experience Psalm 150 when we think 
and experience Psalm 150 in light of Jesus. Because of Jesus, Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heaven. Praise him for his mighty works. Praise with unequaled greatness. Praise him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise him with the lyre and harp. Praise him with tambourines and dancing. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praise to the Lord. That's how Psalms ends. That's the attitude of those who are forgiven by Jesus Christ. We're going to end today by singing Psalm 150. It's going to be a new song to us, but it's a fairly easy song. So I'm going to call the praise team together. And let's go out today celebrating the goodness of God and sing together Psalm 150. Let's stand.